Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesise what I've learnt along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello, it's Dominic Monkhouse and welcome to the Melting Pot podcast. Today I'm talking to Shannon Burns-Susco entrepreneur, founder of two businesses, three businesses, successfully exits from two, living the dream in Whistler. And I'm talking to her about her first and, well, two books, really. Um, We mentioned them both. The first one is The Metronome Effect, which is really how she developed a system for predictable profitability. And she wrote that so people would stop ringing her and asking her how she did it. And then she realized she hadn't put enough detail into that book. So she made her second book, The Three Hag Way, which has just come out, even more prescriptive, again, in the, I think, vain hope that people will stop ringing her to ask her for help. So we talk about loads of stuff, and I think it was a great conversation. Enjoy. So Shannon Susco, I currently coach... Uh, CEOs and leadership teams. I'm uh, maybe recovered former CEO and founder of two companies. Why did you found a company? I think the biggest reason why, um, and I had three co-founders in my first company, uh, we really just wanted to solve the problem we saw in the marketplace and really didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. Okay. And what was the problem in that first business? In the first business, and we had to pivot three times, but the very first problem why we started the business was to solve uh, the way uh, GIS, so you know, basically data files, everything now we have on Google Maps was very regulated. And at that time they deregulated it. And we're going to make it easy to actually distribute those files without people stealing the million dollar data sets. Uh-huh. It sounds crazy, but it was like a problem that needed to be solved. Because satellite imagery wasn't free Mm-mm. and there was no mechanism to buy yep. it in small chunks. No, they were just big data sets for millions of dollars. And you pivoted three times? What, did you, what problem did you end up solving? The problem we ended up solving was payment processing. You got to think like, how do we get there? Uh, we were doing the, you know, protect the data slides, like, you know, the GIS data. But in order to do that, people wanted access to that one tile or whatever it was, had to give us their credit card information. And we thought that problem had already been solved. That was our assumption. So that'd be really easy to integrate and we'd move on. And then what we learned is that problem wasn't really solved. and, uh, And it certainly wasn't easy. So we actually, being the developers we were at the time, we solved that problem for ourselves. But once we did it, everybody else, you know, we worked with IBM and we worked with HP and they saw we solved it. 
and they started taking us to all the banks. And at first I was saying, we're not a payment processor. But that was the easiest thing we've ever done because the phone just started ringing and never stopped. Where the other you know, business, we were totally out of our league, too early, go on and on and on, you know. And so was that your primary route to market was through channel partners? You, you were solving a problem for IBM's customers? Yeah, so they were definitely partners and we made their customers, which were the banks and the payment processors and, you know, and all globally, we made their, their customers our channel to get to the businesses, to get to the merchants. Yeah. And it was really, that's how we grew so fast. And they knocked, you know, they would take us to a country, say, come on in, meet these five banks. Can you help them? The next, the next, the next. It was really great. Did IBM wrap your thing in a solution? No. Or were they just introducing you to their customers because it, it was a problem their customers had? Yeah, so IBM had sold their customers a payment gateway that was too hard to connect to. Their vision was everybody, all the businesses would be so easily be able to connect to this platform. Anybody can do it. And the banks bought into that. And then there was only a few companies that were able to do it. We're basically solving their problem. They had sold a you know, multi-million dollar solution into the banks for internet payments and nobody could connect. So they were desperate they had a, for a solution. Yeah. They'd made promises they couldn't keep. Yes. Yeah, they really did. They thought every merchant out there would be so, it would be so easy for them to connect their back office to the payment gateway. I think it was a flawed assumption, but we definitely leveraged it and leveraged HP and IBM. And so you were the CEO of that business? Yep. Is that by accident, by design? Because what you said you were a developer? Yep. So it was by accident. I co-founded the business with four, well, three others. And one was like a ex-ski bum from Whistler, British Columbia, you know, trying to get out of skiing and find something to do. One was a real estate marketing person, just trying to find something to do. Uh-huh. And a 15-year-old who was, one of, he still is, one of the smartest people I know. And then me, who my background was business and computer science. And so the 15-year-old and I, David Slick, we built the platform. Um, But over time, uh, the founders were falling away. And when we rolled to payments, I was the last founder standing. And so we were venture-backed heavily. And uh, my board, so I ran the company until we could find a CEO. And then so I went out to find the CEO. I actually actively looked for a CEO. And I thought I'd found one. And they showed up to the board meeting to meet the rest of the board. And I had no idea they were going to do this. They go, well, you actually have a CEO. And her name is Shannon. And she's really good at what she does. And why would you be looking for another one? Seriously. Yeah, seriously. And I was sort of shocked. But, you know, that was really nice. I had been running the company. But... The board at that time was uh, very old school, all male. Uh, I was very young, I was in my 20s, and I thought there's no way somebody this young, this tech, right, woman, 
could be the CEO of this company. We're just blind to that opportunity. Yep. But they took somebody from the outside, some, someone that they highly respected, to actually tell them that. And I, I think they thought I knew that you know, the person I'd found to be CEO was going to do that, but I had no idea. I was sitting there like, you know, just with my mouth wide open going, wow, you know? And then what he said, he said, I will be the executive chairperson of the board. Like he's just rolling right in. He goes, and I'm going to be Shannon's coach. Uh -huh. I was like, wow, that's awesome. You know, like how great. Yeah. You can't be a CEO with a coach. Yeah. Right. And that's what that's how I learned so quickly. Oh, I had from day one of a CEO, I had a coach. Aha. Yeah. And that was enough for them to feel that they de-risked the decision to keep you running the business. You yes. must have been hitting your numbers. Yes, absolutely. But they were just so, you know, well, not the right gender, not the right age. You know, founder was against me. Tech was against me. There's no way she could figure this out. Right, grow the business. And then he did. Yes. Muddled through. Muddled through, yep. The first four years was a muddle. Big muddle. But then, you know, greatly enough, you're at a conference, you're there for a reason, and Vern Harnish was moderating the conference, and he kept throwing things out. I mean, there was no book at the time. He wrote a column, you know, he did workshops, and he did stuff like this, moderated leadership conferences, and he kept throwing all his terms out around huddles. And I, I would go up at every break like a groupie, probably drove him nuts for three days and go, what do you mean by that? Because he didn't present or anything. He just was started, you know, he'd just throw in little things. And I'd go, well, what's that? And I'd have to go up and find out. And then after that conference, I said to him at the end, very nicely agreed, I said, would you mind if I sent you just one email a month? And I, I'm just going to say, how do I start? And you, it does not be a long email. Just give me a couple points, and then I'm going to come back, and my team and I are going to get this going. And then the next month, I'm going to tell you what I did, and I'm going to ask you what we should do next. And so for 12 months, that's what we did, to actually get the company in a place where we had visibility of our plan. I loved it in one page right? Yeah. Two pages printed one, but the one page plan. And that's what I'm so thankful about that because it stopped me from writing 200 page business plans. So the one page plan for us, uh, for me, especially, it just stopped all these crazy business plans that we were writing and got us really focused on the key components of any business to grow. So our cultural system, our strategic system, and our execution system. That's what it really brought to the table. And that's when we went from crazy, chaotic four years of not knowing what we were doing, really not knowing what we were doing. We made so many mistakes and maybe some twice, to really getting focused, getting clear on why we existed, all that great stuff, all the cultural pieces, core values, core purpose, but then aligning that all the way through from your 10 to 30 year goal, your three year, your one year, and then what do we have to do in the next 90 days? That's what brought the focus back so that over the next six years as we grew that business, we followed that, that sort of framework. Yeah. And Vern was great to just, you know, he didn't have enough time 
to deal with us. And it was just one email a month for 12 months. So that was like amazing. Very and, grateful. And your chairman who was coaching you on, but he yeah. was he didn't have those tools at his disposal. So he was coaching you on no. running the business, yeah. but didn't have a framework. Yeah. So he was very experienced, right? He was like in Canada, he, you know, founded the first sort of tech firm, grew it huge, sold it, you know, big player. And so he was coaching me, you know, uh, on being a CEO and, you know, all the fundamental things that you would think of 200 page business plans and things like that. But when this came along, I had to not only like figure this out with my team, but I had to like sell it to him so that he could sell it to the board that they're going to come to the board meeting and I'm going to deliver a one page plan as a business plan, no more 200 pages. So you got to think young tech founder, not experienced CEO. And now I'm bringing a one page plan. I didn't match it. They thought it was crazy, right? Seriously. But he was brilliant at going, here's why. Like he really understood the fundamentals and he just hadn't seen it before. So it made sense to him, you know, as being an experienced CEO. And so we just had to figure out how to bring the board with us step by step. And what were some of the other things that you did in the business that were less traditional? Yeah, so many things. Uh, one of the, the biggest things that... We had to figure it out. I didn't want an org chart anywhere in the business. Typical, you know, I just didn't want the hierarchy. I didn't want, like, it's one of the reasons why we started a business. Actually, we solved a problem. But the four of us weren't, weren't great at, in uh, corporate Canada. We, like, didn't want to follow the rules. You know, we didn't want to do any of it. So we wanted to create our own workplace. And with, you know, with doing that, the no org chart and all those things, like I had to learn that we needed one, we needed some view of how we all related to one another. So I knew as a CEO and I, my first coach was excellent in helping me just get visibility on the awareness of what my role was with people, right? Number one thing for a CEO, most CEOs wouldn't say that, right? And so everything we did around people like, so I tried to throw out that traditional org chart. And instead, we brought in a very non-traditional org chart, which was functional, mm -hmm. functional first. And we sort of put our starting line up, which was our, you know, how we were all going to work together and get business done. And then we had the team in front of everybody else, you know, walk up and go, I'm going to own this position. This functional position is going to be mine. And we did it one by one by one by one. I get my companies to do that now too, because now we're declaring to each other this, that we're accountable to the team and the team goal. And so that's one side of it. But we did so many fun things around the plan mm -hmm. and around who our core customer was and how we're going to stay focused on our core customer. Everything from you know, the typical empty chair at the table and that represents the customer. That's not that crazy anymore. But bringing like a mannequin in, right? Dressing them up as our core customer. And they're in the room, bringing them in. We'd always have pictures everywhere of our core customer. And all the way through by doing that, driving that into the themes, the crazy themes for our business. And the themes, everyone goes, what are themes? I said, well, the themes we were working in our business was a way to do really fun stuff, crazy stuff, all around focusing on that 90-day plan to reach our numbers.
And so some of the themes one year, I think the year we rolled this out, this new framework and a new way for us to do business, we called it between the ditches because we we're trying to keep the bus on the road with a hundred people on the bus. We're trying to keep gas in the tank cash. We're trying to keep the bus, you know, from going in the ditch. And so every quarter had some kind of race car or driving theme. And we did all kinds of different rewards when we met our goals, anything from go-kart driving and everybody's going, like everyone has to show up. And, you know, all throughout that quarter, I think I would dress up more in those theme roles, you know, as being on the bus with the team, like than any other, you know, time for Halloween over the life. Every quarter I was dressing up as something, right? It was sort of fun, right? And the whole leadership team's wondering what we're dressing up because we had someone else pick our themes, another team over time. It was really, really fun. Perhaps. So that was a six-year ride? That come Ten, years. Ten years. Ten years. Four years of chaos because yeah. we didn't know what we were doing. Right? Everything you could do wrong, we did do wrong. And then uh, six, years to, uh, six years to sell it successfully, yeah. you know, to get it out the other side. And in that time, you know, there was September 11th, the market blew, the bubble burst in tech. So it's like, you know, late 90s, early 2000. Yeah, yeah. So when was your It was exit? a ride, 2006. Okay. Yeah. How many people at that point? Uh, we were 150 people. Okay. We were up there. And so, we had to back this, you know, that framework I talked about, we had to back it in. Yeah. Yeah. And so you exited. What happened then? So when I exited, I actually got uh, contracted through the exit. I had to go to the other company for two years. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they really wanted to leverage uh, my skill set. I was running the Canadian entity. And then slowly, you know, they kept asking me to take on more. But the thing they asked me to do three months in that I think really hard about was, would I take this growth framework that we learned and all the extra things we learned along the way, because we were just self-implementing, because my coach didn't know this, and would we implement it for the new company? You know, there was now 400 of us. And I actually said no, because I'm not the CEO. And I said no to the CEO. I said, the only way you can really implement this is if the CEO is like front and center driving this, right? And you don't have to do all the work, but you got to be committed to driving this. And so I said, you need to go away and think about that. No different than with our clients today that we coach, the CEO has to be committed. They have to really want it. So with that, on the second time, I said no. He came back and ensured to me that he was committed. And so he said, will you coach me in how to do it? That's where the coaching really started. And so I worked with him. And like my team, the team that got acquired in, knew through everything I was doing that it was me behind the scenes. But he, no one else did. Yeah. So it was awesome. So they implemented, we implemented, it took 36 months to implement the full framework for 400 people. And that framework had then evolved into? Yeah, the metronome effect. Okay. Yeah, then that's what I wrote the book about. And I didn't write the book until after I exited my second company. But what happened, I was supposed to be there for two years at the first company that I acquired. I was only supposed to be there for two years. Um, they asked me to stay for another year. 
I agreed because we are getting ready to sell the company and we're going to leverage this framework again to drive the value of the company. And then it was 2008 and the markets were blowing everywhere slowly and then really blew. At the same time, I was offered a great opportunity to um, acquire some orphaned compliance software. And I thought that was pretty boring, actually. I thought that was going to be terrible. That's going to be like watching paint dry. And so, but I really dug into it. And I really dug into if I had to launch a company again, because going a second time, there's a lot of pressure. You don't want to not have a success. But I dug into it in late 2007, and I'd already said yes to 2008, so I had to stay with this company. But I launched a new company in February 2008. And my partner, my co-founding partner, I just had one, he said, until you get released, I'll sort of part-time CEO this. And then when you're released, which was going to be later that year, then you can step in. And so that was a really tough year for me because I was working really hard for this other company. I have three young kids, three kids less than three years apart. And I am also at night, weekends, I didn't get a lot of sleep that year. I was you know, building another company called Subservio. And the only reason I did that particular company, I think that is when I really recognized what we did in our first company, which was uh, setting that three-year highly achievable goal and making sure we knew what that was going to be in the second company. And we have the strategy and the execution aligned before we opened the doors of the company. And where did you put the company? We put the company in Vancouver, British Columbia. First company was in Whistler, British Columbia. The second company, we were all still in Whistler, but we were tired about wasting time in marketplace because everyone wanted to talk about Whistler and we just wanted to make sure they bought our solution. So we moved it to Vancouver (laughs) and we had some people in Vancouver. Some of our developers had moved there and we just, we built it out of Vancouver, which was the right thing to do. And were you there? Five days a week, nine to five? Yeah, more than that. (laughs) Especially in the beginning, because we built it. So the the goal with the second company was, let's not raise any money. Let's customer fund it. That's why the three-year highly achievable goal as a key sort of pivot point in our plan was really important. We had to figure out how we're going to customer fund it from month one. And we worked out a deal. Uh, We bought the platform, the software, from someone else that was in my CEO roundtable. It was orphaned. They didn't have any use for it any longer. So we did a bit of a vendor take back deal on it. So I wasn't going to pay anything up front with it, but I'd pay them, you know, at a, we worked out when we'd start paying, which was years mm-hmm. later. And so we had everything going. We had a couple, just myself, uh, my co-founding partner and one other. We had a couple contractors and we brought on our first client in the first month. And so we started having cash flow, which was, and then we just kept going. And what we were asking, which is wild, people really needed what we had, which is we were solving the post-trade compliance problem, a little bit why the markets blew yeah. 2008, because everyone was doing it by hand and manual and eyeballing it. And we actually automated it. So compliance was really done, you know, checking all the rules done at night. And when the compliance officers came in in the morning now, it was just the exceptions. 
So that was a huge thing at that time. Like down market, worst time to start a company unless it's compliance, mm-hmm. right? And you're solving a problem. And so we definitely did. And, and that actually, that whole thing is why people would actually, they knew we were not venture backed, the people who were working with us. And they would pay a whole year in advance, some two years in advance, because we solved that big of a problem for them. So they were funding us. Because they wanted you to succeed. Yes. It was really, really good, good timing. But also, I remember my partner saying, and you know, being in the credit card business, I'm like, I'm taking that all on a credit card. I'm not even waiting for the check. Let's get the cash in the bank as soon as we can. So we were like running, you know, a year's worth of compliance, hundred grand on a credit card. And they're like, that's a lot of money to be paid. And I said, well, that's the cost of net present dollars. That's all. I'd rather have it sooner than they're going to cost more waiting to get the check approved and this and that. And everybody wants points on their credit cards. (laughs) So we leveraged that. But that's what funded our second business. And honestly, that was just a great validation of everything we learned in our first business. And our second business went three years, three months, right? Three years, three months. We sold it. Uh, We actually took term sheets on the third year in the 12th quarter on our three-year highly achievable goal, what we set out to do. And the fact that we did that and the fact the acquirers recognized how well we predicted the future and executed on it, and then we had predicted again, of course, where we're going three years later, um, they paid that value, that future value for the company. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that's why it became a top three deal that year on Wall Street for the mid-markets, and in Vancouver, it was number one. And that was based on the valuation being driven up by the predictability of the business. Yep. How good we were at predicting and how well we executed. And most, you know, when you see business plans, most don't give the acquirer, this is what we said we were going to do three years ago. Oh, and look, we did it. Like that usually doesn't happen to the detail that we had. And once they recognized that, we originally had, you know, your typical deal of a company of that age. We were only three years old, which was, you know, upfront payment. And then you've got a three-year earnout. Like we weren't afraid of that because of the three-year highly achievable goal, the three hack. But I certainly would rather not have to do that under the pressure we'd be under to deliver. Yeah. And when once they figured out that we were that good at delivering, they actually called back and said, hey, we need to talk about a few things in the term sheet and the agreement. And I was sort of waiting for the call. And it's usually, you, you know this, it's usually they're going to talk you the price down. And instead, I mean, I almost dropped the phone. They were like, yeah, so... The earnout. We think we just want to pay the net present value of that earnout fully on the day we close. I was like, "What? Really? Wow, that's great!" And I'm like trying to be like all really cool and calm. I'm thinking, "Holy cow! Like I'm going to be free, you know, because I don't have to drive the earnout on behalf of my shareholders because I would have to do it." And the the interesting thing about that is. I remember having a board call off of that, after that to give them a heads up that the deal will probably be changing. And my board was really hard. They, they actually thought we were leaving money on the table, but taking the net present value of the earnout fully paid out on the day we close. To this day, I still can't figure that out. 
There was no more upside to be had. They paid it all and they paid, they paid something like, like our iBankers thought we were nuts on the valuation as they always do. And they even said this at the closing dinner. Like we thought Shannon was crazy on the valuation that she thought she could get for this company. And we were so wrong, so wrong. We were wrong, six times wrong, right? And they were just like, you know, well, <laughs> thank you for teaching us a lesson basically. But it was just nice because, and, and it'll make them think for other companies, they'll take a step back and listen. But they didn't know about the three hag. You know, they didn't understand what we had did, fully understand what we did in such a short period of time. And so you then exited? Yep. So we did exit. I had to get my board on side. I actually had to sell that deal hard. There was like, our board was made up of my co-founding partner, a good friend of mine who leveraged the software with us, and one other person. And we, what we did when we were um, taking off, like in the third year, we took in some uh, angel money, just a million dollars to have in the bank so we'd never be in trouble, yeah. right? We put that in place, so that was the other person on the board. And they like really, really gave us a hard time. And it took me to create a, a table, like a, basically a cap table, and what their ROI was on that money. They got nine times back in the worst markets we'd ever seen. Nine times. In... And they invested 12 months ago, and they got nine times their money back. Nine times in 12 months? Yeah. How bad is that? Like, how much better does it get, right? I'm really proud of the ROI we delivered back, you know, so much so that we know, you know, if we had to do it again and had to go get a check written. Yeah, they're going to write a check, right? That's what you want. So that was such an interesting thing for me. I thought it was a no-brainer slam dunk when they changed the deal. But I think they were uh, maybe as you know, uninformed maybe as the iBankers, and that's my fault. You know, the board, I know these guys well. We did formally have our board meetings and everything you expect. Um, but maybe I thought they understood what we had done in the last three years better than what I probably communicated. Yeah, so that was probably my fault. And then... And then take, so we exit. Take some time off? Well, funny enough, part of that deal was they really wanted to tie me into the business for two years. And uh, I look at that as an opportunity cost. And I had to really consider, like, they really tied me in. And the one thing they did differently, they wanted to give me more money. Like they wanted to pay me out more than any of the other shareholders. They wanted to do some separate deal. And I was like, that's crazy. That is not going to fly. So, you know, when we were racking our brains, what are we going to do? And so we made, we just said, well, let's just take some of my proceeds. Has to be enough. And we had to agree, I had a really good relationship with them. It had to be enough that I wouldn't leave. The only thing I couldn't do was voluntarily leave. They could fire me. I didn't really have to work, all that stuff, but I just couldn't leave. But that's not in me. They knew me well enough that if I said I was going to do it, I would do it. So I, I agreed to stay for two years. They escrowed my proceeds just a little bit. Of just, uh, and it was time bound that they would give it back to me. Right? It was a fine deal. And so I went over to uh, the public company who bought us and the division that they created. And it was really quite fun 
because again, they wanted to implement the framework that we had learned, right? Yeah. Three HAG, BHAG, everything to do with what we did. And again, what's in the metronome effect, you know, that, that framework. And it was another huge learning experience. I'd never been in a public company that big. I'd never implemented this framework for a $4 billion company. And, you know, it just proved that it works. It took a bit longer because there was lots more people involved, right? But we knew when we got it going is that as a division going to the senior leadership team, and we're going up with the nine other divisions in the business, the other divisions after a few quarters of running this plan and running this framework really started to dislike us because we'd always show up with, here's where we're going, right? Here's what's happened and here's what we're gonna do next. And the next quarter we'd come again very succinctly and we were you know, gaining traction and getting somewhere. You're and making them look bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was uh, giving them definitely uh, some wondering uh, what should they be doing, right? And I, I knew I had to get out of there before they said, would you coach this division, this division, this division? So I just did, I did my two years there, stepped out, and yeah, then I'm retired. Yeah, I'm retired. Good. Yeah, it was great. Really, really good. But the interesting thing, how I ended up coaching was honestly... Someone who knew what we had done called me and said, we want to do what you did. Would you coach me? I had never even considered it. I was like, oh, that's a good idea. Let me think about it. You know, and I asked my husband, I go, should I do this? He goes, well, it sort of aligns with what you're about, right? You coach the other, you know, leaders and the other businesses. You coach your team, right, to grow and to implement this. He goes, you should give it a try. So that's sort of how I became a coach. And then uh, I just decided uh, how many clients I wanted and how many days I wanted to work in any one year. And that's been like what I've been doing since 2011. Actually, that's 2011 plus two years, so 2013. Yeah. I sort of started thinking about the process. I had people call me, but I just wouldn't say yes because I was busy working for the other company. Yeah. And then someone called me at the right time. You wrote the book to help your clients or? No, no, no. I actually wrote the book so nobody would call me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the metronome effect, I was really prescriptive in exactly how the framework, how you implement the framework. Like uh, I'm a little unusual because I'm a do-it-yourselfer CEO. And we know it's really hard. I coach lots of CEOs to do this. Um, and, you know, they hire a coach to go faster. And so I wrote the book. Because I figured, you know, it's clear enough. Here's the prescription, right? And they, the other coaches could use it if they wanted or just CEOs and leadership teams could use it. But it had the opposite effect. More people started calling me, which was I should have known better. Yeah. Because I, I, I always said I'd never write a book. But then I said it out loud one day when I was with uh, some of the CEOs that were in my, you know, peer group and whatnot. And once you say it out loud, then you got to do it. So I did it for the opposite effect that most people write a book. I figured I'd one to many share with as many people, uh, building a company shouldn't be this hard. And in the height of building my first company, I read four books a week for two years, business books, trying to find like the silver bullet 
there must be one, right? There's got to be a silver bullet. Someone else had to have written a book like that. And they didn't. I could not find a single one that said, here's what to do. Isn't that crazy? Yep. So a lot of people go, how could you read that many books? Now, I wasn't reading. I was doing, at that time, it was books on CD, right? I was going to say books on tape. That's what my dad did, right? But I was just trying, I was consuming information like crazy. And we know that's a big part. Like the CEOs I work with, they've got to be learners. But that was a little extreme. There is no doubt. But I was desperate to prove that board of directors wrong who told me I couldn't do it. Anytime you tell me I can't do something, <laughs> probably is. And they probably did it on purpose, honestly, because <laughs> they knew I was wired that way. But I really wanted to figure it out. And I went and sought out the best thought leaders out there, including my coach. Like, how do we do this in a way that's practical in a high growth company? And did you have a coach when you were running Subservia? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly enough, it was the chair of my board and it was actually my partner who founded the business because he was out. He didn't. As soon as I got out to run the business, he's uh, 20 years older than me, multi, you know, serial entrepreneur, CEO many times, right? He happened to be in my round table, my CEO round table. And so he ended up being sort of my coach. It's actually pretty good. The, the framework, again, he knew nothing of your framework. So he was coaching you on no. yeah. the stuff around that? Yeah, just, you know, a lot to do with me, but a lot to do with fundamentals. Because the framework's all, it's all business fundamentals. Yeah. Uh, it's how you implement it, you know, practically for high growth companies is what's important. But he was in my roundtable for enough years at Paradata. And my CEO roundtable, I was in for 12 years. It's a peer group, meet once a month for dinner, you know, share your issues and see how you can solve them. Someone else must have had it. But we're all following now what was called the Rockefeller Habits. Yeah. And so he was really aware of that, but not at the same level of execution of putting it in place as I was. Yeah. So he understood it all. He could ask like great questions to help move me this way, that way. But he wasn't going to come in and moderate my quarterly meeting or anything like that. Okay. Why did you write your new book? Yeah. Accidental, <laughs> reluctant CEO, reluctant author, now retired, persuaded to go and do some coaching. Yeah. I was not going to write the first book, and now you've written a second book. Yeah. So I wrote the second book actually to help coaches and the do-it-yourselfer CEOs. And I wrote it even more prescriptively. I wrote it like, here's how you would do this, like right down to here's what you should do in the meeting, because I really don't want them to call me. <laughs> so that's the idea, right? That's why I wrote it. But the reason, the biggest reason why I wrote it is once I became a coach and I was doing this with all my clients with great success like we had, when talking to some other coaches that are out there and they asked me, because I would just call it three hag, they're like, what is that? So you have a three-year, what? I said, oh, it's a three-year highly achievable goal. And so then they said, do you think you'd share some of that, what you do with me, and I'm going to use it on my clients? Sure, absolutely. And so they were, I was just sort of feeding them, piecemealing it into them. And um, one of the coaches, Rich Manders, took it into a company that was doing like 20, 30 million. And in three years' time, grew it to like 140 million. 
And he was at uh, Vernon Harnish's Growth Summit, the Scale Up Summit, about a year ago. And he got up on stage because Vern wants to tell his story, which is cool. And Vern said, Sloan, tell me, you know, you've got great things going on. Tell me all about it. And he said, well, Vern, it's all about the three hag. And I almost felt like I literally almost fell out of my chair. I had no idea. Like, really, I know Rich went and did it, but I had no idea. Like, he, Rich hadn't told me the story. I knew they were doing well, but I didn't know he was going to say that. So after that summit, that was one year ago to this month, and um, Rich, you know, lots of people are like, three hag, what's the three hag? Well, I don't have time to tell everybody the three hag, so I decided I should just write it down in a book and then give it, you know, put it out there so people can figure out they need a three hag too and how to get one. Yeah. And when did it come out? April 18th. And it's been bestseller, new releases, and business coaching. It's been, uh, which has been awesome. That's been really fun to see the different categories it ends up in. But it's uh, hard copy, of course, uh, Audible, and Kindle. And it's got to be Audible. I have to have books in your ear. It's because it's how we learn and how CEOs learn. More women CEOs, more women in tech. How does that problem get solved? It's going to take a really... Is it, is it a problem? Well, it wasn't a problem for me. I just want to tell you that. I didn't have a problem being a woman CEO. The problem is the old school thinking about women being CEOs. I didn't even think about it. Nobody, you know, I grew up in a pretty traditional household, right? Dad worked, mom stayed at home, five kids, six years, get out there, you know, my, my dad, uh, you know, I remember being 17, 18, you go to university, you get out, you get married. Really? You know, I was like, that's not happening. <laughs> I have things to do. I didn't know I was going to do these things, but I definitely knew like, no, I don't think so. You know, definitely fiery. And I think I misheard any preconceived concession my father had, like he was that traditional about like, you know, women stay home, men go to work. And like, I just thought, wow. And people go, your dad was like that? And I go, yeah. But I missed it all. Like somehow I never heard it. Maybe I just didn't want to hear it. <laughs> right? I figured I could do anything anyone else could do, especially my brothers. Right? So I just like just kept going. When we went, tech was probably the most accepting industry of a woman CEO. Why? Because we're all a bunch of geeks. Right? Geeks accept geeks. They, don't, they didn't care. But I can tell you in university, there was really interesting. I was going through getting my computer science degree and my master's in computer science. In the, and there's only two girls in the class, and I was one of them. In the beginning, we were sort of blown off that we would be good at this. And then when the midterm mar marks came out in the first semester, and we were one and two, quickly attitudes changed. They're like, oh, wow, these girls are good. So it's like we always have to prove ourselves. But I found in tech, like when I went out to build a business, I didn't have to prove myself. I had to prove myself to people who weren't in tech, the traditional business that I had to do it. And all along the way, I never knew until later on with the success that we had building the businesses. And people asked me, how'd you do that? Like, how did you as a female raise $20 million? I'm like, do others have difficulty doing that? They said, yes. Really? Well, I think I just told the story, right? Presented the value proposition and 
sold the shares and I had to deliver on it, right? So, and I know, you know, am I a huge fan of growing women in tech? Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of growing anybody, right? That's all what I'm all about. Growing leaders, impacting lives. That's what I do now. But that's what I did when I was a CEO. That it, as long as you're growing your people, you're going to grow your company. So that was my number one thing. Always, always. And when you're running around executing as well in the early days, that's a hard thing to keep in focus. And how have you managed to balance? Because you mm. started that business and had three small children. Yeah. So the day my oldest son was born, Cain, it'll be 15, 16 years ago this August, my husband retired from Paradata Systems, my first company. He was a developer. I didn't meet him in the business. We brought him into the business because in Whistler, how many development companies are there, right? But uh, we agreed that one of us would stay home full time with the kids as we had kids. And that was a big discussion. And we just, I could not leave what I was doing and what I committed to do. So you know, he basically stopped and started being Mr. Mom. He's been Mr. Mom. It'll be 16 years in August. That's why one of us, when I retired, had to get out to do something. I actually asked him, what do you want to go do? He goes, I don't. I like doing this. Okay, well, I'm going to go do something. (laughs) (laughs) And if you could go back in time in either of those businesses, is there one thing you'd do differently? Well, you know, the great opportunity I had was to create a second company. So that's the way I would always build a company. Yeah. the way I did it the second time. And it is so validated and so clear. It's why I want to get out there and share. But when I think about my first company and all the mistakes we made, the one thing, and I wish I, you know, that we would have done differently from day one, is we were so focused how, you know, on the problem we were solving and the pretty product we made. It was good for sure. We had four or five patents, six patents. I don't even know how many patents I have in my name, but I have lots of patents. But we were so focused on the geeky tech stuff, we didn't focus really and get clear before we started on what we should look like. Like all doing all the work that we did for our second company, we did that before we opened the doors. We didn't do that for our first. We didn't even know. We didn't even know what we didn't know, right? So... That whole experience was, let's not do that again in our second company, right? Let's do the steps. Let's validate what we did. And we certainly validated. And the other companies we rolled into. And, you know, I'm sort of being a bit of a sandbagger. I do have a third company that I co-founded with two others. But I don't run. I co-founded with two others who are in all four of those companies with me to give them the opportunity to grow a company that they co-founded. And so I'm their coach. I definitely support them. Definitely a huge fan. They've been with me for over 15 years on four different teams. And they're just starting to build and grow metronome growth systems. So we didn't open the doors to that business. Like at first I was asked to make that into a business, this tool we created for companies and coaches to use to grow their companies. And I didn't want to let anyone else use that tool. I got a tool developed for me to keep me out of the office because I'm retired. And then other coaches saw it and they really wanted it. 
and now it's grown into a business. But we didn't open the doors of that business until we validated all like the whole plan from core purpose, core values, BHAG, 3HAG, 1HAG, 90-day plan. And I know coaches were annoyed with us because people wanted it sooner. And we said, no, we have to validate there's an opportunity here to actually do something with this company. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast, and there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.